Over the next 15 minutes, we will cover the basics of stroke. If you want more information, feel free to dive into our resident level podcast of the same topic. Okay, so let's begin. Stroke is very common. Behind coronary artery disease, it is the second most common non-traumatic cause of mortality and third most common cause of disability. While stroke is decreasing in more affluent countries, it is still very present and is something that every physician should know to recognize because inevitably, patients in your practice will have had strokes. So at the most basic level, what is a stroke? A definition you could use is that it is anything that causes ischemia to the brain. Now about 80% of strokes are ischemic and cut off the flow of blood for one reason or another. The other 20% of patients have hemorrhagic strokes caused usually by a rupture of a blood vessel in the brain and will be covered separately. The fundamental questions in stroke are, what type of stroke is it and what caused it? While dead cells don't grow back, understanding the etiology allows us to put a plan in place to keep the same type of stroke from happening again. This is what we call secondary prevention. And as you'll see, different strokes can have different treatments, which in turn depend on the underlying cause. We'll begin by talking about blood clots. Clots can form in a few different places, but the most obvious is in the brain itself. This occurs because of processes like hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and smoking, all of which cause blood vessel wall damage and lead to lipohyalinosis. Most commonly, This affects very small blood vessels that come off big blood vessels because of the sudden change in blood pressure experienced there. These are vessels like the thalamus striae perforators supratentorially, which are tiny branches off the MCA or PCA, or else basilar perforators infratentorially. The pathology here is similar to the plaque rupture seen in myocardial infarction. When one of these now fragile blood vessels has enough endothelial compromise, then procoagulant factors are exposed and a clot will begin to form along the vessel wall at that location. Once big enough, this thrombus leads to obstruction and downstream ischemia causing a small, round lacunar infarct. While small, these lacunes can end up affecting very important territories due to the density and consolidation of pathways deeper in the brain. As the widespread cortical territories that make up the terminus of the fan-like corona radiata project towards the brainstem, they become very confined in the internal capsule or thalamus, which is often perfused by thalamus striate perforators, and thus small lacunar strokes here cause pure motor anteriorly, pure sensory posteriorly, or mixed lacunar strokes. Similarly, lacoons in the brainstem can produce devastating effects despite their small size because the proximity of cranial nerve nuclei and relative size of the descending and ascending pathways. You can think of lacunar stroke as a primary vessel wall integrity issue, and the best treatment for vessel wall problems is with antiplatelet agents like aspirin or Plavix or both together, and then using a statin to address any LDL above 70. Now, the absolute size of the clot I just mentioned is actually very small because the blood vessel it forms in is small. So what causes the big clots responsible for huge MCA strokes? You have to move a little more proximally from the brain to get more space for a larger clot to form. This next scenario is not the most common, but the carotids themselves are susceptible to many of the same vascular risk factors we just discussed for lacunar strokes. Most commonly, around the carotid bifurcation, you can see stenosis or plaques form because of the endothelial injury caused by turbulence of flow at the split. 
So now you get a large plaque that can erode, become unstable, and then break off, traveling downstream until it gets lodged in a cerebral vessel like the MCA, the ACA, or even the distal ICA. We call this an artery-to-artery embolus. How do you treat patients with this type of finding? Well, this too is primarily an issue of the vessel wall, and so these patients get aspirin plavix, or both. The one addition here is that studies have shown that if you find a severe enough stenosis greater than 70% on the side of the patient's stroke, the patient can benefit from having endarterectomy or stenting within two weeks of the stroke. Similarly, significant stenoses can cause dynamic flow limitation and, if blood pressure drops, put the downstream territories at risk of ischemia through hypoperfusion. Remember, the watershed territories are at the greatest risk of damage during hypotensive events because they are the farthest from the main branches and see the lowest pressures to begin with. Here again, if the stenosis is thought to be causing this decreased flow, surgery may be indicated. Moving even further from the head, we find a very different source of clots, with a different origin story and consequently a different preventative treatment. The largest producer of big clots is a malfunctioning heart. What could cause a clot there? The biggest offender is atrial fibrillation. Remember, in AFib, the atria lose the normal, highly coordinated signal to contract and instead turn into this completely uncoordinated writhing bag that is terrible at moving blood. So instead, the blood sits there and can start to thicken and eventually forms a clot. In some cases, you can even see the thrombus on ultrasound. But more often, we're left without a smoking gun, and instead have to go searching for the AFib we think is there. As a result, patients with embolic-appearing strokes will often get long-term cardiac monitors to try to catch the AFib. So you see, this time it is not endothelial damage primarily, but instead is stasis that is largely responsible for clot formation and a different cause begets a different treatment. For stasis, anticoagulation with Coumadin or one of the newer oral anticoagulants becomes the best treatment. However, at least at this time, you do really need to see AFib. Our studies have not shown any benefit yet to starting anticoagulation empirically, but this is an area with a lot of active research. What about clots that form elsewhere in the body, like DVTs? In theory, this shouldn't really matter. Those clots form from stasis and veins and then embolize, moving through the IVC to the right heart, then to the lungs. In this way, your lungs act as a protective filter, keeping clots from going to your brain. So how does this even matter? Remember that 30% of the population has a patent foramen ovale, and that means they have a hole in their heart connecting the right and left atria. So why doesn't every third person you meet have a terrible stroke? Well, two things. First, those PFOs are usually small, and second, if you remember your nickel quarter dime trick, you'll remember that the left atria is usually under higher pressures than the right, and so any flow through the PFO is more likely to go down gradient left to right, which just leads straight back to the lungs. However, in some people this does become important, and clots occasionally get through, causing what is called a paradoxical embolus. Especially in young patients with strokes, we worry about this and often pursue a transesophageal echo even if the transthoracic doesn't show a PFO. In treatment, depending on the imaging, age, and other factors, there is a potential benefit from surgically closing the PFO, which can usually be done through a catheter-based approach. Now, there are two key concepts about stroke itself we need to understand before we move on to treatments. That's the infarct penumbra and the core. 
A penumbra is the region of tissue that is being underperfused, possibly is symptomatic, but is not yet dead. The critical element keeping that tissue alive is flow through accessory blood vessel connections that brings blood from unblocked territories into the blocked territory. This is called collateral circulation. Higher blood pressures likely help to push more blood through those collateral pathways, and this is why we allow stroke patients to have permissive hypertension with blood pressures as high as 220 over 110. Okay, so you've got this penumbra of at-risk tissue surviving on the borrowed collateral circulation, but the further you get from the edges, the further you get from collateral circulation, and ultimately you get to the infarct core, where there is truly not enough blood flow and the tissue is dying. And when we talk about cell death in the core, this means everything. Neurons, glia, axons, and even the blood vessels are living cells, and all begin to die. Keep that in mind because it will be important later. So what do we do acutely? Well, as you've no doubt already been told, time is brain, and the key to stroke treatment is speed. Every minute lost to a large stroke costs a person 2 million neurons, 14 billion synapses, and 12 kilometers of myelinated fibers. The first step in evaluation of acute stroke is to establish a timeline for the last time the patient was seen totally normal, because all of our acute therapies are time-dependent. Next, we identify the stroke through our neurologic exam as well as the standardized NIH stroke scale and try to determine if it is truly a stroke or is a stroke mimic, such as a Bell's palsy or Todd's paralysis. Then, imaging must be obtained to determine if the stroke is ischemic or hemorrhagic. Usually, this is a CT scan because it is so fast and will show you acute blood. CT scans won't necessarily show you hyperacute stroke, though, as it can take hours before the damage from the stroke can be seen on CT. In this way, imaging usually just rules out hemorrhage and stroke itself remains a clinical diagnosis based on the history and exam. This has led some stroke pathways to use MRI if available, since it can detect stroke within minutes of onset using diffusion-weighted imaging. So, once the timeline is determined, patient found clinically with a stroke and hemorrhage ruled out, the focus turns to treatment. There's three ways as of now to stop a stroke. 1. Your body clears it by itself through the constant balance of clot formation and breakdown. This can end up causing what we call a transient ischemic attack if it happens fast enough that you don't form an infarct core or can cause a smaller stroke if the clot breaks up and still gets lodged downstream. 2. We can give tissue plasminogen activator, which is an IV medication that is an analog of one of your natural enzymes that works to break down clots in the body. Or three, we can do a surgical procedure called thrombectomy to pull out the clot if the clot is in a big enough blood vessel. TPA works well, but has limitations. Generally accepted practice is that TPA can be given to strokes up to four and a half hours old. Beyond that point, the infarct has gone too far, damaged too many of the vessels in the area of the stroke, and the risk of giving TPA is too high because that badly damaged tissue is actually more likely to bleed when exposed to thrombolysis. Even within that four and a half hour window, we still warn people that while 30% of patients improve, 3% may get worse after TPA. Also remember that TPA is given systemically through an IV and affects the entire body, breaking down clots absolutely everywhere so you have a number of contraindications to giving the medicine. These are things like GI bleed, recent surgery or head trauma, active anticoagulation use, and others you can find detailed elsewhere. 
Recent research is working to expand that 4.5 hour time window, though, and there's the potential to use advanced imaging like MR perfusion or CT perfusion to define the penumbra and core and who should and should not get TPA. The third option is thrombectomy, which is a catheter-based fluoroscopic surgical removal of a clot. However, we can only do this if the clot is in a big enough blood vessel that our endovascular tools would fit, and so these strokes are called large vessel occlusions. Generally speaking, these are very severe strokes, as the clot must be stuck somewhere proximally, most frequently in the main MCA branch or just past the first or second bifurcation. Other vessels can be affected, such as the ACA or basilar, but these are less frequent. Timing is important here as well. Currently, we perform this for strokes up to 24 hours old, but if the stroke is more than 6 hours old, we perform perfusion imaging to evaluate the size of the penumbra versus the core. If the core is already too large, then there is unfortunately nothing left to save, and reperfusion to those injured vessels is dangerous and can cause hemorrhages. What comes after the acute treatments? Pretty much everyone gets vascular risk factor evaluation with a lipid panel and A1C, and then at least carotid artery eval with an ultrasound or CT or MR angiography. Patients that were treated with TPA or thrombectomy need very close monitoring, ideally in a dedicated stroke unit or a neurocritical care unit because they are at risk of hemorrhage. Additionally, Patients with large stroke territories involving 50% of the MCA territory or 35% of the cerebellar hemisphere are at risk of having that stroke swell and lead to herniation. The greatest amount of swelling usually occurs within the first 48 hours, but swelling can continue for one to two weeks after the stroke occurred. If this occurs, these patients may require treatment with hemicraniectomy to remove part of the skull and allow the brain to swell outwards rather than be forced downwards. Hospital care and long-term planning requires a multidisciplinary team. Strokes frequently affect motor function, and patients benefit from working with rehab medicine and physical therapy. The spasticity that develops following an upper motor neuron injury may ultimately also require medication and potentially Botox injection. Patients frequently also benefit from occupational therapy to help them adjust to the new functional limitations in their ability to care for themselves. Additionally, Patients with aphasia, dysarthria, or dysphagia can benefit from acute evaluation and long-term care by speech-language pathology. So let's put it all together. A stroke is ischemia of brain tissue caused by blood clots that can form in the brain causing lacunes or can form outside the brain and then embolize. Time is key as there is collateral circulation that creates a salvageable penumbra around the ischemic core. Once a stroke is detected, patients are evaluated clinically using the standardized NIH stroke scale and then CT is done to rule out hemorrhage. Assuming no contraindications and if the patient was last known normal within four and a half hours, they can get TPA to break down the clot and if it's within 24 hours and imaging confirms an LVO with sizable penumbra, they can undergo thrombectomy to remove the clot. These patients must be monitored closely as the damaged tissue can convert to a hemorrhagic stroke or a large stroke can swell and cause herniation. After the stroke, depending on the mechanism, patients will receive secondary prevention with antiplatelets if the clot was thought to be caused by endothelial damage, or anticoagulation if the clot was the result of stasis, like in AFib. Recovery requires a multidisciplinary team and continues over the span of months to years. There's much more to stroke, and we didn't even touch on presentation or syndromes, but as with most of neurology, Know your anatomy and you'll know your lesion. 
More info on imaging techniques discussed here can be found in the Neuroradiology Guide prepared by Dr. Ken Leung, and more detail on the studies behind these therapies can be found in the Resident Stroke Podcast.